Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, it's me, Sam Baker. And before we go on with the show, I want to tell you about an exciting new initiative coming from The Shift. Many of you have asked how you can support the podcast further and get more Shift into the bargain. Well, now you have the opportunity to do just that by joining The Shift community. You can go to steady.media forward slash The Shift and become a member of The Shift. In return for supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive weekly newsletters, community membership and plenty of other perks aimed at bringing us all closer together. That's Steady. Dot media forward slash the shift. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no holds barred truth about being a woman post 40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. This week's guest will make you wonder what you do with your time. Sabrina Pace Humphreys is an award winning businesswoman, a social justice activist, an ultra runner, a mother of four, and grandmother of two. Not bad going for 44, but it is none of those things that led her to write her memoir, Black Sheep, a story of growing up black on the poverty line in small town England. As a child and the only black person in that town, she experienced constant bullying, verbal and physical racist abuse. She didn't know who she was or where she belonged. To finally be seen by a black woman, a strong black woman, it was a game changer for me. Sabrina joined me to talk about why she's decided it's time to speak out about rural racism, the impact of growing up in a place where literally nobody looked like her, and how she finally found the identity she craved. Sabrina is incredibly frank about burying herself in workaholism and alcoholism, her battles with anxiety, and how learning to run, after a lifetime of mocking runners, saved her. If you're looking for motivation to start running, look no further. In fact, if you're looking for motivation full stop, you've found it. Well, Sabrina, thank you so much for coming on The Shift. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you. Um, let's go straight in. Black Sheep, your amazing memoir, starts with your own really powerful words, this town is racist. Mm. What did it take for you to, A, kind of know that deep mm. inside yourself and B, say it out loud? My lived experience showed me that. My lived experience told me from as young as I can remember that I was living in an area where because there was such a lack of minorities, such a lack of black and brown people living around me, being schooled with me, that I was therefore a target. So what told me that my town was racist? Well, it was growing up in a town where for many, many, many years, I experienced racism because of the colour of my skin. And unlike living anywhere where there might be a larger majority of black and brown faces, I didn't. You know, there was no one else that I knew that looked like me. So therefore that told me from a very young age, you know, I'm surrounded by people who don't like me because of the colour of my skin. And when I could put a word to that, that was racism. What spurred me on to say that 
you know, I was 42 years old, you know, George Floyd that year had been murdered. And, you know, we had seen the graphic content of that playing out on social media. And a friend said she would come with me to a Black Lives Matter protest, which was the first Black Lives Matter protest that we'd ever had in the town that I live. And what spurred me on to stand up and say that was because at the end of that protest where, you know, we had been invited to kneel for the same amount of time that Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck, you know, something changed within me in terms of feeling the pain and the trauma of what I had been through, you know, living in a UK countryside rural town. And at the end of that protest, a white woman was trying to kind of take over the narrative and talk about her experience. And I couldn't stand back and and not speak. I I felt uh, absolute compulsion to speak up about my experience. And that was a speech that unbeknownst to me had been videoed and was shared on social media and was viewed hundreds of thousands of times. So uh, yeah, that's what led me to that. It's astonishing, isn't it, that a protest over the murder of a black man that a white person would try to make it about them and it just shows you the extent of the problem really well it does and it plays out to this day you know it plays out in my own life and the life of people of color not just living in rural spaces but kind of you know across the uk and globally in the sense of you know those those aspects of our lived experience that are traumatizing that stay with us ultimately forever that they can be used as a experience or as a tool with which to further diminish us, to further silence us. And this is racism. You know, this is, you know, systemic kind of internalized and um, some would call it ignorance. But what it is, it's sections of the society that believe that it is their absolute right a duty or job to hold us down, to tell us, to tell me, you know, which I've been told, you know, that doesn't happen here. That doesn't happen here. That's not the town that I know. You've got to be making it up or lying because that's not my experience. But what I always say is your experience is through the lens of a white man or woman. Your experience is poles apart from my experience and I will not have you deny me that. So yeah, I think that since that protest, it just, it really opened up this Pandora's box inside me that I had kept triple locked for 42 years because to speak about that stuff is to, it kind of, it's to relive it again. And it's to put yourself out there ultimately as a target for those people. And I did not feel strong enough to do that until it became so that to not speak about it was more painful. Like you say, opening that box, it's not just standing up now and making yourself a target now, is it? It's like you're unraveling the whole of who you are. All of it. All of it. You know, you keep these things hidden because going through them is traumatic enough, never mind continuously retelling that story. So I talk about in the book, you know, I had a a friend whom within that period I lost because she didn't understand my lived experience because it wasn't something that over dinner or over coffee in the years that we had been friends that I had felt strong enough or wanted to revisit. You know, I grew up wanting 
to not be different. So therefore, to talk mm. about that difference, to talk about racism that I'd encountered amongst white friends who were uncomfortable about that, again, subconsciously, kind of, does that really happen here? Is again, it's it's a process and it's a conversation that for many years I didn't want to have because I did not want to be different. I wanted to fit in because that's all as a child I ever wanted to do because to mm. fit in meant not to be targeted. So yeah, it's... um. It's been very, very difficult and it was difficult and continues to be difficult. It doesn't get easier. I think every conversation I have around my experiences, in my own head, there are different thoughts about that around how I handled it, around the support that I had. But ultimately, it still hurts. I'm still, you know, inside there, there is still that, you know, that small child, teenage girl that didn't feel as though she had anywhere to turn because no one around her looked like her in order to say, I've been through that too. And let me support you through that. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to kind of relive any of your childhood experiences for the audience because you do that in the book. And I think, you know, to various different degrees, people will identify with your, you know, not your degree of pain and isolation, but with your experience, say, of being the fate princess mm. or not being the fate princess, mm. like, um, and the bullying. And, you know, it's absolutely shocking. But I think the, the thing that really struck me the most was the fact that you racialize as black and your sister passes as white, mm. doesn't she? Mm. You, know, you have the same parents. Yeah. I mean, that must have been, that just must have been incredibly tough. It was really hard in the sense of I couldn't even identify with my own sister. Mm. She never, ever experienced racism. She looked so dissimilar to me in every aspect other than the fact that we both wear glasses. You know, a trait that we inherited from our father, severe short-sightedness. But the way her hair grew, the colour of her skin, the way she tanned, her nose, her features. You know, she is white presenting. You would never, ever guess that her father is black. Whereas you look at me you know my father is black you know my father is a man of color and therefore our childhood experiences were vastly different I couldn't go home and cry at night or I couldn't even comfort my own sister the way that I felt that I wanted to be comforted. I couldn't play that big sister role because how every day panned out for us was so different. And I didn't want also, I didn't want my sister to have to do that for me. I was the older sister. Mm. I was the sister that should be looking after her. So therefore it wasn't her role. And she didn't have the mental capacity to understand what was happening to me and therefore how to respond either. Because again, there was no one to to learn that from. Our father and mother separated when we were very young. So I had no one in the home or in the social group or around the community to help me or us navigate that. So therefore, the only person I could rely upon was myself. I love my sister. My sister is my world. And all I wanted to do was to protect her from that aspect of my life. So I would say to her, I don't need you to stick up for me. You know, I don't need you to do that. I don't need you to put yourself in a situation where they can turn it on you as well as the sister of all the names they called me. I don't want you to experience that you're my little sister. So I wanted to protect her from that. So therefore I dealt with it myself. But there was absolutely 
absolutely no sitting on bed at night, holding hands, crying together about the names we had been called because we as sisters weren't treated the same. Listening to you talk, I'm just thinking that self-sufficiency there that you're describing, that kind of, I need to rely on myself and that I'm the only person who can help me. That's like played out through your entire life, hasn't it? And I've got, as you can imagine, loads of questions about that, about how that's manifested through your career and now. But before we go there, I would just quite like to ask you about Auntie Fee, Mm. because it seems to me that Auntie Fee... And if you can tell the listeners who she is, is a real turning point for you. I mean, like, would it be fair to say the first point in your life when you had someone to identify with, some representation? Oh, gosh, absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. So Auntie Fee, there's a chapter in the book called Don't Touch My Hair, and it talks about me saving money and and encouraging my mum to give me money to go for a haircut at a salon in my town. And and again, you know, there were no Afro-Caribbean salons salons in my town. There were no hairdressers that understood how to cut hair. So ultimately, I was given a haircut at early teenage years, which resembled the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Now you can imagine, <laughs> as a ch- you Sorry, can imagine, bro. no, it's, it's a funny story. It's heartbreaking, but it's funny. But you know, when the only cultural reference that a hairdresser has in your town, again, because they're not surrounded by black people is a television show. And that television show is Will Smith and the Fresh Prince. So when you have a a black teenage girl come to you saying she wants a hairstyle that that is cool, that is, you know, that will help her fit in, you shave her front, back and sides. Oh it was God. absolutely harrowing. But a couple of months later, in order to um, deal with that, in order to try and find someone that could help me, I managed to research and find in my nearest city a uh, hairdressers, which was based in a part of that town that is very diverse, um, lots of black and brown faces. And Auntie Fee was a black woman who I first felt seen by. I sat down in the chair of her salon and I was absolutely at rock bottom. I was a hormonal teenager who was experiencing quite serious racial abuse on the daily, Monday to Friday from school. And I felt I didn't fit in anywhere. I couldn't identify with anyone. And, you know, I sat in that salon chair and I was ashamed of my hair and I was ashamed of who I was. And I didn't know who I was, you know, and she, she saw me, you know, she placed her, her hands she she could feel how matted my hair was. She could see how broken it was where I'd been pulling it back every day to try and tease it to be straight. And she saw through this mask that slipped very, very quickly once I felt safe in her presence. And she saw me, you know, she said, I see you, you know. She asked me what I saw and My response and how I looked was, you know, I'm a half cast, just nothing, you know. And she told me I wasn't half of any cast because that's how I identified. You know, the word mixed race wasn't something that came into my psyche until those times, you know, talking to Fiona because people referred to me, you know, even my own mother, you know, she's half cast because my mother didn't know any better. So, yeah, when you self-identify as half of a caste and you're told that you're not white, you're black, 
and you're othered because of being that, but you can't identify with any other black people because they're not around you. They're not in your town. They're not in your family. To finally be seen by a black woman, a strong black woman, it was a game changer for me. Being with her and those hair appointments that I had for years, it was more than hair. It was mm. just this filling my cup with what I should know about myself, what I should know about my culture, what I should know about local history, what I should know about my skin and how to look after it, my hair and how to look after it, makeup, cl- everything, every single appointment she filled my cup back up and I will forever forever be grateful we lost touch she moved from that hairdressers and and then I I found someone else but for really just really pivotal years in my life to have someone a black person who absolutely wanted to instill in me the tools that she knew I needed to navigate my life was a blessing it was absolutely what I needed and I yeah I I look back on that time so fondly that I had the initiative or had the wherewithal to think I'm not going to put myself in a situation with another hairdresser that doesn't understand I knew even then that doesn't understand how to look after my hair I have to find this person myself and thank god it was her I mean, because of where you lived, and you still live there, don't you? I do. I still live here. Yeah. You were never going to come across anyone, were you? A teacher or a random neighbor or anything. You were never going to accidentally. No. I was constantly on the lookout for people that looked like me. And I can remember there was one day we had a district sports event, which is where many of the schools in the district come together. And and I can remember in the distance seeing a mixed race girl. And I was obsessed with trying to see what her school jumper said. Every time she ran past, trying to catch her eye. And she'd come from, you know, nearer the city where there were more black and brown people. And I can remember like going home and saying to my mum, you know, I saw somebody that looked like me and she went to this school and almost like I wanted to go to that school. I just... I just wanted to be friends or just even have a conversation with someone to say, do they call you this name too? And how do you deal with it? Or have you ever had someone try and burn your hair? You know, have you ever, you know, just just to feel that identification because, you know, they weren't my teachers. They weren't my doctors or nurses. They weren't my friends. They weren't my mum's friends. They weren't at the youth club I eventually went to. For those formative years, they just weren't there. Um, and that's really, really hard. It's really, it's really difficult when you're trying to find identity and there is no one that you feel you can identify with in order to form the person that you, you really want to be. I didn't want to be shy. I didn't want to not want to go outside, but that was my life for many years. Were you ever tempted to leave? Oh God, I thought about running away, (laughs) but then where would I go? You know, my father at that time I didn't really understand where he was living. And my mother's 
family lived in Scotland. I had nowhere to go. You know, I was brought up in a poor single parent family. You know, we were very poor. We relied on food banks and all of our clothes mm. were secondhand. I talk in the book, I didn't go abroad. I didn't go on an aeroplane until I was 17. That's not, That wasn't our life. We had no money. No. So there was nowhere to go. There was nowhere my mum, you know, and I would say to her, I'd like to live near a city because I knew that there would be more black people. You know, I've been to London for school trips to like the Natural History Museum. And I would be on the coach and I would see black and brown people, lots of black and brown people. And I would say to my mum, you know, why can't we live somewhere bigger, somewhere where there are more people? She couldn't afford it. So we were were trapped in our circumstance because we didn't have the financial resources to change it. I mean, you got pregnant at 17 and had two children with your partner, didn't you? Yeah, I did. At that point or at the point that you split up with your partner or later on as you began your business, did you not think, actually, I'm just, I'm going to go and live somewhere else? No. Not that that you should. Yeah, yeah, I didn't because I was so focused on building a foundation on the foundation that the foundation that I already had in the sense of getting pregnant at 17 and having Rhiannon I knew that I needed to rely upon the support of mine and my partner's immediate family if I needed childcare help if I needed financial support and then when when we split up when you know our relationship broke down I knew that if I were to move away that would mean that I could not rely upon my mum or or his side of the family to help to share the load in order that I could you know not be dependent on the state for handouts because I never wanted to be that I never wanted to have to rely on the state for handouts I never wanted to be a statistic as a teenage mum you know everyone when I was pregnant with Rhiannon the overriding response was you're throwing your life away why would you have a child so young you're another statistic another young mum no qualifications no hope most people told me that the only person that didn't was my own mother you know members close friends and members of the family insinuated and told me I was making a mistake so to leave the town where the only support, the big support mm. was my mother, she was never, she could never afford to leave and she didn't want to. So therefore I had to make that decision that I will continue to live my life and, and bring up my children here. But still, you know, put that stuff aside, put the racism that I experienced and experienced to the side, because actually the key thing now is providing a life for my children, for my child and then children. Um, So I became quite adept at putting things in boxes or the Pandora's box Mm. um, and dealing with them at a later date. Putting that trauma in a box, as most people who've experienced trauma do, has massive repercussions, doesn't it? I mean, you've had lifelong anxiety and used alcohol to cope. Mm. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that and how how that's affected your life? As far back as I can remember as a small child, I I lived with a sense of dread on my shoulder. And I didn't I didn't see it as anxiety then because I didn't know what anxiety was. There was always an overriding feeling that I couldn't experience joy because there was always something bad that would follow. There was always a down 
And even as a child, I remember thinking happy things would happen or things that would make me smile or make me feel pleased would happen. And it was always tinged with this anxiety mm. of something bad is coming. Some, and sometimes that would happen. Quite a few times that would happen because of living my, my lived experience. But it, it took away from a very young age, me being able to feel real joy in anything because I always felt as though I would be punished for that joy. And throughout my life, that feeling of never being able to relax, always having to be on guard, always having to be prepared for bad things happening or for being found out. I always lived with this fear that I was going to be found out. And in all of the therapy I've had, it stems from, you know, being othered, you know, being told, you know, you don't belong here. You're not one of us. Having to work extra hard to be a good girl or to be accepted or to be palatable. And it got worse and worse as each year of life went by. But I accepted it. That's just who I am. That's just who I am, that anxiety. You know, until I had my first child at 17 and I had my fourth child almost 13 years ago in 2009. And throughout that long period, the anxiety was dotted with periods of intense low mood, intense darkness. And to cope with that, I used alcohol. I used alcohol to escape, to escape from my life. It was my drug of choice to, as I said to people, release. Uh, I come from a family of alcoholics. You know, my, my background is, um, you know, many of my close relationships are alcohol. Alcoholism, theism runs in my family. And um, it got every year through my 20s, 30s, I became more dependent on more alcohol as a way to get to that release. The word you use a lot in the book, which really made so much sense to me, was numb. Oh, numb. That's all I wanted. Anytime I would raise a glass to my mouth or a bottle to my mouth, it was to absolutely, you know, that feeling, I would crave that feeling of not feeling, the absolute numbness, almost so numb I could hear my own vibration because nothing penetrated that. I was the kind of drinker, I am the kind of alcoholic, recovering alcoholic, I would always be seeking to drink to blackout. So it was never about feeling tipsy, it was about numbness and blackout. Um, because in that blackout, there was nothing. It wasn't even numb. There was just nothing. And, um, you know, I would call myself, especially when I went into recovery, a functioning alcoholic. Mm. You know, I wasn't waking up in the morning and grabbing for the bottle. I was holding down a very uh, respected business at that point. You were exceptionally successful, weren't you? I mean, you weren't just functioning. You were you know, winning awards and running your own business and, dare I say it, workaholic. Absolutely. Absolutely. As I, well. I wanted them to accept me, whoever they were, whether it was my peers, whether it was the people that judged the awards, the many awards I won, whether it was clients that I wanted to have on my books to work with me. I, I wanted that acceptance. I wanted them to accept me. And it felt at times as though 
even with their acceptance, it was never enough. I was always, I have the disease of more, you know, Mm. more, more, more. And it almost killed me, you know, being a mother of four, the main breadwinner of the family, running an award-winning business, having staff and dealing with anxiety and depression, using alcohol as my crutch took me to rock bottom um, to the point where my husband was probably about a day away from telling me to leave the family home. And, And that for me was the turning point in the sense of the realization that my dependence upon alcohol could lose me everything that I held so dearly. Um, And, you know, I needed to get help. I had to get help. Otherwise, if I lost them, I knew that that would be the end for me because I, I knew and I know that had I not sought recovery, I don't think I would be here talking to you today. That's where that's where my addiction was taking me. I'm really interested in how a person like you who has been, you know, who've built yourself as entirely self-sufficient, you know, give or take. I mean, obviously, yeah. I know you had your husband and your family, but, you know, self-sufficiency seems to be at your core. And yet one of the primary steps of AA is about, I don't know what the exact language is, but it's about giving away responsibilities, yeah. accepting the higher power. Yeah, yeah, we accepted that our lives were unmanageable. Yeah, it's around acceptance and, and handing it over. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And how did you struggle with that? Because you had all those balls in the air, didn't you, all the time? Yeah, I did. I did. There's no doubt about it. I I found it incredibly hard initially for, for a couple of months to even say the word alcoholic. I would stumble over it at meetings. I would I wouldn't speak at meetings initially because to label myself as that, to accept that and everything that went alongside it for me felt as if I had failed. I had failed. And um thank the Lord I had women around me in the fellowship who too were self-sufficient women who too had run successful businesses or had been very successful within their careers, who too were mothers. 
because they retold my story to a point in the sense of you can be all of those things and have achieved all of those things, yet still suffer with this addiction, live with this addiction. And I think that when you surround yourself with with people who have been through the same types of experiences as you and have used and have been to deep, dark places, yet you look at them and they're so well, they seem so well put together. They seem so switched on, but they have the vulnerability and the experience to know that to share their experience with you can make your journey that bit less uncomfortable, especially in those early days. That's what the fellowship is about. It's about sharing experience, strength and hope, you know, and hope for me. I needed hope in those early days because it felt as though I was losing grip on everything and God and now as well as everything else they labeled me now I had the label of an alcoholic so it was so it was so hard but the power of community and again being seen this that's this thing you know like auntie fee just being seen was very, very important for my recovery and still to this day continues to be an important part of my recovery. It's so interesting, isn't it? The concept of being seen and how it intersects with invisibility. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, as, as a child, you said you always just wanted to be invisible. You just wanted to not be bullied, not be seen by the racist, just yeah. to fit in. Um, but it's kind of the opposite of what you needed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My um, my self-defense mechanism to deal with all of that in my childhood was absolutely, as you've said, I wanted to blend in. I wanted to be nothing. I didn't want to stand out. But actually what I needed, now I know with the years of experience, yeah, I needed to be seen. I needed to be supported to be accepted. Yeah, to feel present in the world. For so many years, I felt like I was looking at my life, especially as a child, I would look at other children having fun and playing and, you know, and little things like, you know, having their hair brushed, you know, with a normal paddle comb. And I'd be like, I just look and I would be obsessed at how I remember just watching how smoothly the brush went through their straight hair. And I felt as though I was an onlooker in life for so many years because of just feeling I didn't want to be a target. So I wanted to blend in. But actually, I kind of needed someone to come over to me with that brush. You know, I needed somebody to want to play with my hair and not play with it in a way that it was unusual or touch it or you know, say it felt like a Brillo pad. I just, I just wanted to be cared for in that way and to be accepted just like the normal girls as I, as I used to mm. refer to them, the, the girls that weren't me. I mean, you're more visible than ever now. How does that feel? Scary sometimes. <laughs> it does. It does. Because, because when you're talking about issues of race or the lack of diversity, you know, all of those things that kind of, I guess, 
are the key parts of my story. You know, being a teenage mum at 17, getting pregnant at 17 and being an alcoholic, you know, all of these things, the old Sabrina, I guess, or the Sabrina that will sometimes come out and come to play if she's feeling particularly vulnerable, will say, no, no, you know, we have to protect us. Let's just merge into the background again. But it's impossible now because I chose that day. I stood up and said, this town is racist. There was no going back. You know, there was no going back. And, you know, I never had a book like this. Like there was no resource for me growing up. No one handed me a book that said, you know what? I know that you deal with all of these things or, you know, you do, you're a person of color and you live in a rural town, you deal with racism or you're a teenage mum and you feel that your, your life is maybe over or, you know, you think you might be an alcoholic or certainly you're using alcohol. Nowadays, yes, there's more books about alcoholism, you know, there's more books about the black experience, but there's still, you know, I, I keep a look out there. There's still very few books on rural racism from a lived experience point of view. And I guess, if there's one book I ever wrote, it was going to be this book. And I will continue, continue to amplify my voice around what it is to be a person of color living in rural space where you are the minority and how that plays out day to day. And some days it plays out really ugly because the majority around you don't want to acknowledge your experience. Um, and that's just, that's just my life. But I will, I will continue to have these conversations because if one person feels seen, if one person reads this book and feels, whether it's from a rural racism point of view or whether it's from a motherhood or a mental health or addiction, if one person feels that connection, it's all been worth it. All of the conversations are worth it. And the trolling and the targeting that comes with that. Well, I'm 44 now and there's not a lot that I haven't experienced and therefore developed tools to deal with. I know how to look after my mental health. I have a very, very, you know, amazing husband who I talk about glowingly in the book. And he he helps me remember who I am when it's the dark days and it would be very easy to forget why I'm doing this. Um, you said you know, you're 44 now. 40 was quite a big turning point for you, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, it was a massive turning point. When I was 40, I I decided as a, a gift to myself to to, <laughs> <laughs> to participate. And again, this is this this is this Sabrina thing. It's this kind of where are your limits almost? What what are you able to mentally and physically do? So for my 40th birthday, it was early recovery. I've been in recovery for two years, almost two years. And I, I needed to do something to celebrate having been on the earth for 40 years. So I chose to participate and train for a Sahara Desert based ultramarathon called the Marathon des Saab, which is a 250 kilometer multi-day run race in the Sahara Desert. I'd never even run on sand before 2016. And you hadn't even run at all no. before 2009. No, no, absolutely not. I did not like running. I did not like the physical act of running I would I would laugh when I would see runners I would be in the car on the way to the gym maybe and I would see these runners running along the road and they looked in a world of pain when they were running and they didn't look joyful 
granted they were mostly kind of you know road runners who were kind of short shorts and vests and were kind of you know out there trying to run as fast as they could skinny white middle-aged men skinny white middle-aged men yeah (laughs) you know I only took up running because I was diagnosed with severe postnatal depression after the birth of my fourth child and as another aid to help me manage my mental health alongside medication my GP said to me, why not try a run or jog? So to go from that, the one minute shuffle, one minute walk, (laughs) which was horrendous the first time. But you know what it gave me? It gave me 30 or so minutes that day where I didn't want to die. I didn't have thoughts about not being here anymore. I didn't think I was the most awful person, mother, you know, that everything in my life was was going down the pan. You know, it stopped the dark thoughts for that period of time when I was running because all I could think about was breathing, was moving my body forward, was not falling in the canal because I was running by. <laughs> so in 2018, when I was 40, running the Marathon Day Sarp, wow, I, I can remember standing on the start line and thinking, I'm here. I'm actually just about to start what they call the toughest foot race on earth. I am not talented. And I do want to say this because people people kind of think I must have run as a child. I must, you know, come from a sporting. I absolutely don't. I use running first and foremost as a tool to help me to manage my mental health. And, and everything after that comes after that. I just find running for long distances really helps me absolutely maybe it's another form of numbing but (laughs) actually I have some of the best solutions to my problems for me the longer that I'm moving my body forward so I'm now what they classify as an ultra runner and all that means is I I run a long way (laughs) when I run run, I run a a long way very long way you don't just run a long way you run would it be fair to say that you're a person who needs extremes? I think so. I think, <laughs> I, I think I'm happy to admit to that. Admitting and accepting. I'm intrigued as a woman, as a 44-year-old woman who is perimenopausal, who has, and I say this, and I'm not saying this to get sympathy or, or whatever. I am not anything special. I'm not talented when it comes to running, but there is something about the act of running, the act of moving my body forward and feeling strong in that, that makes me feel really, just really fuzzy inside. So I'm I'm really keen to understand where's my limit? Where is my limit when it comes to how far I can move my thick thighs, my big bum forward? Because I'm not, I'm oh, not, shut no, up. I am not, you know, I'm all about representation matters. You know, I'm all about for so many years, all I saw in magazines were white women who were lean and skinny. And I thought that was how you needed to look to run a long way because I didn't yeah, see my, me too, me you know, too. I didn't see myself represented there and so many different levels, color, physicality, being a mom, you know, all of those things. So I'm just, I'm really interested in, Sab, how far if you had to run, could you run? And that's why next month, a week after this book comes out, you're going (laughs) to laugh at me now, a week after the book comes out, I am going to attempt to run the whole of the Pennine Way here in the UK. So that's 268 miles in one go. In one go? Yeah. 
No stopping? No stopping. How long is that going to take you? So the race itself is called the spine. So it starts on the 19th of June and that's when your your watch is started. And it doesn't stop until you cross the finish line. So it starts in Edale, finishes in Kirk Yetholm. And wherever you decide to sleep, whether that's on the trail or wherever it may be, you are still, the clock is running. So it's about managing sleep deprivation, fueling, hydration, the weather. But for me, wow, for so many years, I was scared of being outdoors because they could get me outdoors. And they did. They did. They surrounded me outdoors and they got me there. And so now as a 44-year-old mother of four and grandmother of three, I want to show you can have those experiences happen to you, but with belief and with a, a little sense of adventure that I have now, you can potentially run 268 miles along the spine of the UK and see, is that my limit or is there more in me? Oh my God. <laughs> I don't even want to think about what you might do after that. <laughs> you know what? There might be nothing after that because it might be, my, I'm, you know, if that is my limit, hey, that's absolutely fine. I don't want to hurt myself. That's not what it's about. I don't want to hurt myself anymore. These experiences, I know it seems, and it is extreme. It doesn't seem extreme. It is extreme. But for me, I have to find joy in the process. For me, trail running, which is what I do, I don't run on roads. I run in the countryside. I run up hills and up mountains. And I find mini adventures wherever I go. For me, it's the beauty of still being here, able to traverse these sometimes wild areas that really helps to cement who I who I am, because this is part of who I am. And it's really important for me to represent for women, for women of colour, for mothers, that actually we can do these things too. I started really small. It's really small. And you can too. It doesn't need to be 268 miles, even if it's only two miles. If it brings you joy and reminds you who you are in that process, what a great experience. Anyone listening, and there will be, and in fact me, because I'm scared of running because I struggle with the breathing, Yeah. Um, who's thinking, well, I mean, I've watched you fire up when you're talking about running, your face lights up, <laughs> you a great big smile the whole time. You're just absolutely illuminated <sighs> by it. But what would you say to someone who, like you, is perimenopausal, who is kind of into their 40s and thinking, I want this to be the start of something? How would you suggest that they put that first foot outside? I would say number one is safety is paramount. You know, in order to enjoy running, you need to feel safe in doing that. And that safety comes from kind of understanding what the aim of your run is. Is it to run a mile? And is it within that mile to have three or four walk breaks within that? Never set yourself up to feel even a little sense of failure because you just stepping out of your door, you're doing it. I'm a run coach too. So it's kind of achievable, small chunks. If you go out and you don't have like an idea as to what you want to do within that run, you kind of find that you're floundering, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, have a look at it how I did in those those early days. I knew that I wanted to try and run a mile, run walk a mile. And I broke that mile down into small, measurable 
chunk. So I timed myself. I shuffled for a, a minute. I walked for a minute. And within that, I was able to manage my breathing, which for the first run, you just feel, how am I ever going to be able to manage my breathing? But the key thing for me is that, you know, it is that safety. So especially with trail running, I think that, you know, pick a route or pick a little footpath that you know that you aren't going to get lost, you know, that you feel safe to navigate underfoot, you know, and that will involve what's it like underfoot? Is it been raining? Is it a bit muddy? You know, are my trainers that I'm going to wear, are they appropriate? But more than that, message me, you know, join a community with other women who run to or other people who you can learn from. Like, you know, there are so many different communities. There's, you know, Run Mummy Run. There's Black Trail Runners, which is our community, who just because we're called Black Trail Runners doesn't mean that if you're white, you can't join. If you want to diversify trail running, you are welcome. There are people like me out there who are so passionate about running and want to help, want to support you as in to physically come and run with you as well. So users, ask questions, you know, ask questions, but ultimately do it because there is such joy, even in half a mile. There's joy and there's there's happiness and there's peace to be found, especially when it involves trail running. You couldn't be a better advert for it if you tried, I don't I think. Just, I just, <laughs> honestly, it's given me so much and I, and it, you know, some days it is hard and I'll, I think, oh, I don't want to go out for a run. And, you know, I'll, I'll do what I tell my clients to do. I'll put on my trainers and I'll say, I'll, I'll see how I feel for the first 10 minutes. I'll just see how I feel for the first 10 minutes. I'll listen to my body. And, you know, when all the runs I've ever done, I never come back and feel worse. I always come back and feel just a bit better, especially in this period of perimenopause where sometimes it seems the symptoms are just, there's a new one every day. But, (laughs) you know, I never come back feeling worse. Even if I go out and I think, you know what, rather than run today, I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to walk it. I'm going to walk my miles today. You know, I'll have with the dog and I always come back with just a sense of, I'm really proud of myself that I've done that. You know, a mile a mile is a mile, no matter how fast or slow you do it. You are a runner, you know. So it's just such a great tool, I think, to help to manage our mental health. Brilliant. Right. I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask now. What's your emotional age? Oh, God. <laughs> I think probably it's probably somewhere around like 22. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? I just think that kind of sense of um, at the moment, it just kind of, you know, sometimes it feels as though the world is my oyster. You know, that sense of optimism, that sense of I can do this if I really put my head to it. I can make these changes happen. It it feels as though how I should have felt at 22 almost, you know, how Mm -hmm. when I would look around at my 22 year old friends when I had two children and they were all out traveling and they were partying and I didn't have that life then. But actually now my children are that much older and I'm getting the opportunity to, to speak to so many different and meet so many different people and have so many different experiences. And, and sometimes I'm like a kid in a sweet shop. So I say 22, but actually maybe it's more like 12. Maybe it's more like. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think I have a kind of, yeah, a kind of younger, mentally energetic mindset. Sometimes it's my body that lets me down and my tiredness. <laughs> know that feeling. Can you give us a book recommendation? 
either something that you've read recently that you've loved or something that's been significant to you earlier in your life? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh God. That is such a difficult one. I tell you that the book I'm, I'm loving right now, I'm going to hold it up to you because I keep referring to it. Our stories and our outlook are so similar, but our lives are so different. And it's Viola Davis finding me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So I was sent this by a friend. Um, I'd seen an interview with Viola and um, the day after this came in the post and I wasn't expecting it. And oh, my goodness. Oh, her life her outlook, everything from her struggles with being poor to racism, to being called ugly. Oh, every page. I don't think I felt such connection with a book in a while. And it's come at exactly the right time. I was, I was so overawed by this book and so touched that I emailed to Viola and I said, good for you. I did. I said, look, I have my first book, which is a memoir coming out in June. And I just wanted to thank you for this because I feel the connection with this book that I want people to feel with my book. And, and thank you for being vulnerable and representing and giving hope. So please, yeah, Viola Davis finding me. And this is her. This is her as a child. Oh, bless her. Yeah. Oh, I bet she reads it herself on Audible. So. I think she does. And yeah, I just narrated yeah. my audio book and it was really important that I was the narrator of that. So yeah, I probably will listen to it on audio book as well. Yeah. As an aside, I bet that was really tough, wasn't it? Was it was really hard. It? Really three days of, um, I mean, you'll hear it if anyone listens to the book on audio, uh, you'll hear it in my voice. I mean, it was, um, it was emotional. It was very emotional reading your story out loud and knowing that people will be listening. Yeah, I was brought to tears on many occasions. And uh, and yeah, it was tough, but it was another part of this process. What advice would you give younger women? Surround yourself with people who lift you up. It might sound cliche, but there is so much negativity in the world in what we digest through social media, what we see of people's lives. And we should be doing that, this whole woulda, shoulda, coulda. I spent so many years feeling isolated and feeling that I didn't have allies, feeling that no one understood. And for a time, being in an industry in which I worked, you know, working professionally eight plus hours a day around people that were competing against me and were seeking to seeking to uh, capitalize off what they perceived as my weaknesses. And what I've learned in this process is surround yourself with people who lift you up, who inspire you and who remind you of the, the amazing human being that you are, you know, spend time with them, listen to them, connect with them because they are your people they are your tribe and and oh keep them close because their light will shine upon you and your light will shine upon them and it's this fulfilling circle of of just beautiful beautiful vibe that i seek myself to do that and i seek to be that person for other people because there's just there's so much negativity i know where mental health 
illness can take you. And sometimes we are not our own best friend. We are not. That devil on the shoulder shouts at us some days. So you need to balance that by having that person in real life or even that person on social media who fills you back up again. So seek them out and spend time with them. Brilliant. Who's your old bird role model? Oh my God, my old bird role model. Oh my God, there are so many. Who do I pick? I would say I can remember picking up her book and just like reading through all of her books, like Maya Angelou. Amazing. Amazing. Her story, her fight, her chutzpah, the way she walked, the way she talked. I can remember like reading her stuff, seeing her obsessively watching video after video of her all through my life and just being inspired to think if even I can touch people through whatever vehicle I use for communication in a way that Maya did. Wow. What a life I will be able to say I have lived and and what a, what a woman yeah, absolutely. What a woman, you know, and the world is a the world is a smaller place sometimes it seems without her presence in it, but she lives on in what she has done and what she has given and who she has inspired. You know, watching the interview with Viola and Oprah, you know, and Oprah was very close to Maya and and refers to Maya, Maya said and Maya said and you just yeah, it's it it carries on that legacy and I hope in some way through what I do, she carries on because she's such an inspirational old bird. (laughs) Uh, What's your superpower? Vulnerability. I think that I, I have managed to connect and I think the connection that people say they feel from me and where I feel deep connections is in my vulnerability. It's in feeling that I'm at a place in my life now where it's okay to show that it's okay to connect on that level because ultimately I believe that sharing that vulnerability leads to the change that I want to see in my own little world but ultimately in the world at large that there is strength in that vulnerability and change happens change has happened due to me being vulnerable about my story and continuing to be vulnerable so I think that is that is a bit of a superpower. Not everyone not everyone feels that. No, definitely, definitely not. Um, and lastly, how many fucks do you give? None. I give absolutely zero fucks. Zero fucks given. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have more than earned that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, zero zero fucks given. I think that yeah, life is you know. I'm here for a a good time, not a long time. And I used to, yeah, I used to get, that was not my mantra. Um, But actually, yeah, I'm here to make change. And, you know, the more fucks I care about, the less change I can make. So yeah, zero, none. Brilliant. Thank you, Sabrina, so much. That's been amazing. Thank you so much for asking me to be on. I've really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash The Shift.